0: Well, it is my genuine delight to be back here uh, studying 2 Corinthians with you. Um, and I say it is my genuine delight. I, I, I'm not just being polite uh, when I say that. It, it truly is a delight because um, this study, for me, is, is becoming incredibly transformational. And I say that because it is helping me to further realize that that Christ is my life. He is my life. But that that life is realized, is appropriated, if you will, uh, by my experiencing, on an existential level, being more like him in thought, word, and deed. The Christian life is about being conformed into the image of God's Son. And so, we cannot merely sit back and say yes Christ is my life if that is some simply abstract thing out there that really doesn't have a experiential impact on us and so i hope for you and i hope for uh, anyone who listens in the future that this study will in some way help facilitate that existential <laughs> reality for you so that Christ is your life is not just a pious statement, but that it is a matter of appropriating his life into into yours in such a way that you are in union with him in a living, experiential way. That you are seeing your thoughts, your deeds, your worldview, everything about you, especially your participation in his death, burial, and resurrection coming to real, uh, genuine reality for you. And most importantly, or equally as important, is others around you can see it. Can you imagine what it would be like if we had Christian homes where both mom and dad and, and the kids are uh, experiencing this kind of transformation in their life where where Christ is not just a, a name that they speak with reverence and, and hope, but they, they recognize that his life in each other being worked out in their interpersonal relationships with one another. In other words, can you imagine what it would be like for the Christian home to be a place where the, Christ is actually imaged? Not just talked about, but every time you hear mom talking with dad, dad talking with mom, what you hear, generally speaking, is this wonderful display of Christ-likeness. And this translates into the relationship with the children as well. And then, of course, that would uh, be extended into the church family as well and then hopefully into the marketplace from there, into the world. So this study has incredible implications for all of us. And so when I say it is my delight to be with you and to continue this study, I'm coming from a real genuine place in my heart and mind. So, we are making our way verse by verse through Paul's second letter, and our text today is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're only going to get through verses 12 and 13. So, this study, so far we've discovered, is a study in contrasts, and the contrast is between true apostolic ministry, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and Satan's counterfeit ministry of the letter of the law propagated through human agency of men, the human agency of men who claim to be servants of Christ, even apostles, servants of righteousness they claim, but are in fact ministers of Satan who himself appears as an angel of light. But what they're preaching instead of Christ As appropriated by the Spirit, what these false apostles are preaching, Christ, as he is appropriated by the law. Let me say that again, because it's a critical point. But Paul's opponents, those super apostles, those who came in after Paul established the church in Corinth and tried to usurp his authority, Claim to be apostles, servants of righteousness, but where Paul is preaching Christ as appropriated into the life of the believer by the Holy Spirit, they are preaching Christ as is appropriated by Torah or the law. Now, you may ask, why is this important to you? Well, it's not only important, it's critical. Because if you are in Christ, God is at work in you to conform you into the image of his Son. This is, by the way, the end of the gospel. That's the whole point of the gospel. Not heaven, not even justification by faith alone, as important as that is. The end goal of the gospel is Christ formed in you and ultimately sharing in his glorified state. Are you aware of this? Take a moment and think of what I just said. Does it inform your every waking moment? Or are you still of the mind that God sent his son into the world only to save you from your sins so you may go to heaven when you die? Now this is, of course, true as far as it goes, but proclaiming reconciliation through the cross that does not include the appropriating work of the Spirit is not only a reductionist view of the gospel, it is a failure to declare what Paul calls elsewhere, quote, the whole will of God, end quote, Acts 20, 25-27. Now, I grew up in a denomination, spent my early, my teenage years, my early adult life, in a denomination that claimed to preach the full gospel. But they didn't. So it's not enough even that we claim to preach the whole will of God. We must actually do it. So when we say the whole will of God, we're speaking of, uh, and by the way, that can be translated the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God. We're speaking of not only proclamation, we're talking about appropriation as well. It is the Spirit who appropriates into our life that which Christ died to secure for us. And so, anything that detracts from the work of the Spirit, especially legalism or antinomianism, where you you have no... No call for obedience or or or, or uh, Christ likeness in your character whatsoever. No, no, you're in. You you've preached the, you've you've received the gospel. You believe that Jesus is the Son. So, no, no, there there's no lordship involved in your life. See, it's one extreme or the other. Now, this is a very serious issue that Paul is tackling in this letter. I just read to you Acts 20, the reference there where Paul talks about declaring the whole will of God. And it's very serious because in that Acts 20 reference Paul declares himself quote, innocent of the blood of any of you, he tells the Ephesian elders. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So to not Preach the whole will of God, meaning the appropriating of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection into your life in a very experiential, dynamic way. Do not preach the whole will of God, leaves the preacher with blood on his hands. That's what Paul is saying there. This is no minor issue here. Paul says if you are proclaiming the gospel, but you are not seeing to it that it is also appropriated through the, new mini- the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit, you are guilty of the blood of everyone you preach to. Blood guilt, not just a bad homiletical review. That's a fearful status to be sure if you're a preacher. And yet, it is a status in which most modern Christians uh, have to deal with in their preachers every day, every week. Now, this should make us tremble in godly fear, for this means most of us are hearing only a partial gospel. So there's the whole will of God, which Paul said is absolutely essential, absolutely critical, and that those who do not preach the whole will of God have blood guilt, and then there's the more popular reductionist view of the gospel in which you hear enough of the gospel to, to facilitate conversion but not enough to facilitate conformity to Christ. So let me reiterate. God's primary purpose for you is that you share in the glorification of his Son. Think of that. That's a profound thing. In Colossians, turn there real quick. Paul says in chapter 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Hear that? For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You've been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. So, God is at work in you this very moment with the primary purpose of conforming you into the image of his Son and preparing you for ultimate glorification. At Romans eight twenty-eight through 30 Paul says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who he predestined, predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's Romans 8, 28 through 30. So here in Romans, the apostles making it crystal clear. The purpose for which God causes all things to work together for good in your life is that purpose for which you are predestined, namely, to be conformed into the image of his Son. Therefore, predestination, calling, even justification, is not to be considered an end unto itself, though to listen to the average evangelical one would think so. Rather, justification by faith alone is essential only because apart from it, there's no hope of ultimate glorification. So simply getting saved is not the ultimate goal. Getting saved and being conformed into the image of His Son and participating ultimately one day in His full glorification, that's That's what the Christian life is about. And it's not something we're simply sitting on our hands waiting for. It's something that's being appropriated into our life every moment of every day through the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit. And that is the purpose of Christian ministry. Now, later in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells his readers, quote, "...and we all who with unveiled faces..." contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. End quote. At 2 Corinthians 3.18. The primary purpose of all authentic Christian ministry, therefore, is not to get people saved, per se, but to bring those who are saved into conformity to Christ's image. You know, since Luther, who is one of my heroes, don't get me wrong, but the letter to the Galatians has been read through the lens of a threat to the gospel of justification by faith alone, and that's understandable. But Paul also told those same Galatians. At Galatians 4.19, quote, My dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Paul was perplexed because these believers had an initial experience of conversion by the Spirit through the hearing of the gospel, but were then seduced by false teachers to adopt a religion of the flesh in order to what Paul calls finish. By this he meant move on to the grand purpose for which the Spirit brought about your conversion, and that is that Christ would be formed in you. That's Paul's ultimate goal. Paul Paul did not simply come into Galatia, preach the gospel, get a bunch of people Saved, quote and quote, and then get on to the next region without any concern for their spiritual growth and maturity. Paul said, I, "I'm in I'm in pain here. It's like childbirth pain, waiting for you to be conformed into the image of Christ. Christ to be formed in you, not just by imitation, but by participation in His very life." So you cannot finish by the flesh what God begins in you by his Spirit. But oh, how generations of Christians have attempted to do just that. They get saved and even learn how to behave, but seldom learn to walk in the Spirit and grow into Christ's likeness And that's ultimately the fault of those who preach and teach, of leadership. So the, truly, the great issue for Paul in Galatians and in all of his letters is bringing new converted believers into conformity to Christ. Paul is not about just getting people to say a simple prayer, join the church, and then take his evangelistic program to the next region and repeat that action. In Galatia, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Rome. Paul was concerned not that people simply get saved, but once saved by the blood of Christ's cross, that those saved people grow into the Christ's image. Now, can we say that this is the chief concern for pastors and leaders today? It wasn't always my concern in ministry. I wanted people to place their faith in Jesus, And rightly so. And I still do. Back then, it was usually by saying a prayer and then congratulate them as if they had arrived. Now, my intentions were good. After all, they were not going to hell if they died. Right? What else could matter? But a thorough exegesis, thorough study of the New Testament Convinced me that in this now and not yet eschatological status that we are all in together, the purpose of God is ever increasing conformity to Christ, to which predestination, calling, and justification are to lead. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this, quote, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's what God's up to, by the way. In love he predestined us, he goes on to say, For adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he he has freely given us in the one he loves. That's Ephesians 1, 4-6. So he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. In Christ, we are holy and blameless positionally at the moment of conversion, and then in practice as we mature in Christ, holy and blameless, even as Christ. You know, the Apostle John echoes this grand purpose, writing, quote, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us, John says, is that it did not know him dear friends now we are children of god and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when christ appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is all who have this hope in him purify themselves purify themselves just as he is pure end quote that's first John 2, 28 uh, through 3, uh, verse 3. Now are we children of God, says John. And what we shall be has not yet been made known. So what is to be our response as you and I live out this now and not yet status that we're in? Some would say, pay and pray. <laughs> Others might say, do your best not to sin. But what does John tell us? All who have this hope, what hope? The hope of being perfected in Christ's image at his appearing. They are to do what? Rest in this hope? Hang on until Jesus comes back? Circle the wagons and survive? No, we are to purify ourselves just as Jesus is pure. In other words, as we see his character, his image being further and further worked out in us, that gives us hope, and that motivates us to participate and cooperate and work on that so that it is more and more progressive in our life. Just because we are in the not-yet status doesn't mean that we do nothing. Rather, the hope of perfection in Christ is to motivate us to become more like him now. Okay. So that leads us to our text in 2 Corinthians, to which I'll return. So Paul was a traveling man. He went to Troas with the intention to preach the gospel to Christ to preach the good news of Christ to pagan Gentiles. He says that in our text. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. End quote. So Paul is gone to Troas, and he's seeing a door open, perhaps not only there, but in Macedonia, and he's restless, and he can't find Titus, and so he's going to move on to Macedonia. And he's going to preach the gospel, because you know that's what he does wherever he goes. And wherever Paul senses the Lord has given him an open door, he walks through it. And these pagan Gentiles were a hard crowd. They were steeped in Greek philosophy, Roman paganism. Some were God-fearers, meaning uncircumcised Gentile attenders at the local Jewish synagogue. Sometimes riots would ensue after he preached. Other times, Paul would just be dismissed as irrelevant, as he was in Athens. Still other times, he was stoned and left for dead. Back to Acts chapter 20 for a moment, Paul tells the Ephesian elders there, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Acts 20, 20, 22-24 So Paul had no illusions of what awaited him. Whether he was in Troas or he's going to Macedonia, he knew he was preaching the gospel to to a hostile audience. There was no stadium filled with adoring devotees to Christ who had brought their unsaved friends to hear the famous preacher. There was no welcoming committee waiting him at the port. No, he and his associates went out to preach to a hostile world, But they did so in the power of the Spirit, not knowing what would become of them as a result. But he was compelled, not by personal gain, not by fame, or some assurance of safety and comfort, or a positive reception even. Rather, he was compelled by the Spirit to go. And this is the first point to understand in the New Covenant Ministry of the Spirit. Evangelism is compelled by the Spirit. Evangelism is compelled by the Spirit. The context of our subject text in 2 Corinthians here reminds us at uh, verse 17 that there are many now and then who peddle the word of God for profit. But in stark contrast, it was in Christ that Paul spoke, before God with sincerity, as those sent from God. So, our text tells us Paul went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and there he, quote, found that the Lord had opened a door for me. Paul wasn't intro Troas to initiate a campaign for Jesus. Paul wasn't in Troas to tell, tell people how Jesus gets us. He was not there to do market surveys. No, Paul had come to realize his itinerary was set by the Spirit of God. It was the Lord who must open the door. In Psalm one twenty-seven, one, some of you may recall this wonderful psalm, it starts like this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain, says the psalmist. And then he adds, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. And that was Paul's take. He's not going to go anywhere and force anything to happen. He's dependent upon being compelled by the Spirit to go wherever he goes and then dependent upon the power of the Spirit to preach so that people's faith is not in his eloquence or in his delivery, but in the power of God. In the last 50 years, In American churches, we have experienced this wave of evangelical gimmicks and schemes, largely adopted from worldly sales and marketing programs. And they're all designed to get the unbeliever to like us and come to our church. But this was not Paul's program or even his mentality. In a a parallel echo here, in Acts chapter 14, we read, From Metelia, they sailed back to Antioch, Paul and his companions, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. So Paul's completed one of his missionary journeys. On arriving back at Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. They reported all that God had done, not all that they had accomplished, not how successful their marketing and follow-up program was, but they reported that all that God had done, and that, make note now, that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul had no hope of effectual ministry apart from God opening a door to make it happen. Paul had finished his first missionary journey, returned to Antioch, where he and his companions had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. That they, meaning Paul and his companions, which, by the way, is a good reminder here. God does not send us out alone, God does not expect us to carry the Great Commission on our isolated shoulders. The work of God is much too much important and too much weight for one person. It must be done with others. It must be done within community, even if it's a community of two or three others. We recall that Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, and he never asked any of them to take on the Great Commission on their own apart from the ministry and support of others. So likewise, in our subject text, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul did not find his brother in the faith, Titus, and so he said goodbye to them in Troas and went on to Macedonia. Weather had a lot to do with travel back then. And if it was getting too late in the year and winter was at the door, then he may have to simply... Uh, uh, Titus might have to come across by land, and that would take longer. He would be delayed. Paul got restless and said, I'm on my way to Macedonia. Now, maybe the door of opportunity was for preaching at Troas, the region including Macedonia, most likely. After all, it would have been out of character for Paul to abandon any open door merely because Titus was delayed. But the greater point in Acts 14 is that back in Antioch, they reported what God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It is God's work and God's timing and it is God's spirit that brings the result and not worldly wisdom and schemes. Do you remember a few years ago most churches just had to have an espresso stand in the foyer? It was the thing to do, if not a full-blown espresso coffee shop in somewhere in the church. I remember churches asking visitors to fill out a survey about what those visitors liked and didn't like about the services. Seldom in church history has such a shameless display of worldly evangelism occurred in our churches. Maybe the Crusades. Maybe the Inquisition, or maybe the secret sensitive movement the last 50 years. Why depend on God to open doors when we have technology and proven marketing programs? That was the mentality. Now, they would have been loath to say that. They would have denied it vehemently. But that was the thinking of many of Paul's opponents in ministry, both then and now. They were hucksters. They weren't genuine ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit. The last thing the devil wants is men and women compelled by the Spirit to do evangelism. So the devil did not like Paul and his associates. But they are ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit and not of the letter. For as Craig Keener points out, the letter could only inform whereas the Spirit came to transform. So Paul is a man of the Spirit. He knows evangelism, like the entirety of God's redemptive work in the world must be God's work. Evangelism under the new covenant is is reliant upon the power of the Spirit to compel, to bring it about, and to create the outcome. At 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the Corinthians of his winter travel plans again, saying, quote, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 9. So this is Paul's theme. He was looking for a door open to follow and go through. Paul didn't just map out an itinerary and say, well, I don't know where God wants me to go, but I'm going to go here, there, there. No, he waited. He prayerfully waited for a door to open. Two things Paul sought, therefore, to discern. Is God opening a door? And if he is, if it appears he is, that would be measured by the degree of opposition. (laughs) How counterintuitive is that to our thinking today? In Colossians, Paul asked the church to pray for him, saying, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Paul was dependent upon God for his missionary work, for the empowerment and fulfillment of his apostolic ministry. And he realized that the fulfillment of that ministry would likely result in him being thrown in prison, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, hungry, cold. but he was compelled. Under the new covenant of the Spirit, any minister of the new covenant of the Spirit understands that he is going to be motivated, compelled by the Spirit to do what he does. Woe to me, Paul said, if I do not preach the gospel. But there's the comfort and there's the delight and there's the joy of knowing that God is present in your ministry, that he's guiding you. He's opening doors. He's empowering you. He's comforting you. Remember, this letter started out in 2 Corinthians with Paul praising God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Paul wasn't afraid of opposition. God is with him. Christ is with him. The Spirit empowers him, comforts him, guides him. At Colossians 4.4, Paul even asked him to pray for how he delivers the gospel. He says, quote, I pray and pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So Paul is asking the Colossians, pray for an open door, pray for authenticating opposition, and clarity of message. That, beloved, is New Covenant evangelism. We pray for an open door, we pray for opposition, (laughs) because without opposition, if we're preaching to a hostile world, remember it's the world who crucified our Lord, and has persecuted the saints throughout the ages. If we're preaching a proclamation or proclaiming a gospel that for which there is no opposition, then we're not preaching the gospel. Pray for an open door. Look for opposition and do so with a clarity of message. Well, let me give you a conclusion so we can wrap this up. So, what I've said today is what the risen Christ said in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. He said, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. End quote. There may be opposition but that doesn't mean that people will be allowed to shut the door. Evangelism, as with all of God's redemptive work, must be of the Lord in order to be legitimate and effectual. And yet men reject God's ways and adopt worldly wisdom and scheme with the result of filling pews with unregenerate church goers who have yet to hear the gospel. But God's purpose in evangelism is to reach the elect with the good news of reconciliation and transformation. And finally, the means by which he does this is the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit. It is by that ministry to which Paul and his associates have reached the Corinthians, and that ministry alone. Listen, if you are not clear today regarding which covenant you're living under as a Christian, and if you are not experiencing the dynamic work of the Spirit in transforming you into ever-increasing conformity to Christ, then there's a good chance that you're not even under a Christian ministry. No matter how much they use Christian terminology, no matter how much they uh, use Christian um, symbols, and no matter how much they talk about being Christian ministry, if you're not experiencing the dynamic work of the Spirit within you, transforming you into the image of Christ, then something's amiss. It's as simple as that, and yet as profound as that. But this can change for you. By the grace of God, you become clear as to what is legitimate Christian ministry and what is Satan's cheap counterfeit. So I hope it's, you will stay with this study and continue to grow in the grace of God as we work to equip you with the discernment necessary to walk in the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit and be progressively conformed into the image of His Son so that you have the glorious hope of knowing that one day You will fully participate in his glorified state. Amen.